this, I think, was a great ethics seminar. A lot of wonderful things to think about. Right, what is wrong, who's to say, really, in the end. I mean, because it is unknowable. What's the big brew? <laughs> you want answers? I think I'm entitled. You can't handle the truth. Welcome to the beautiful campus of LCMSU, everyone. Who are you? I am the Chancellor. Yeah, baby. Master <laughs> Marcus Zill. Here he is, the man, the myth, the legend, Reverend Ian Pacey, former assistant coordinator for LCMSU, man that goes back to the day when we started this whole thing up, and he was at the University of Arizona. Pastor Pacey serves as an associate pastor at Memorial Lutheran Church in Houston, Texas, and it is great to have you back today. Ian, how are you doing today? I'm doing very well, Marcus. How are you? I'm doing fantastic. Last time we had Pastor Pacey on, we talked about apologetics in general, thought maybe this time we'd talk about the resurrection, really the, the centerpiece of what we need to talk about to people who are unbelievers on campus in terms of both apologetics and evangelism is the resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So as we wake our way through this, though, Pastor Pacey, how about first, before we dive into resurrection stuff, why don't you uh, kind of give us a little overview of just what the apologetic task is in general. Sure, happy to do it. So when it comes to apologetics, Lutherans have a particular angle, a particular way of handling it, and it has to do with our fundamental doctrine of original sin. That is, nobody's uh, arguing anybody into the kingdom of God, and the chief issue is always going to be uh, a sin issue. So what Lutherans try to do more than anything else is they try to undercut or undermine false belief, disbelief, those kinds of things. And there are many, many different um, strategies for undercutting false belief. Uh, sometimes there's the, the, the scientific version of this where uh, the question is evolution or, you know, something to do with physics or, you know, the age of the earth, these kinds of things. Mm-hmm. Um, in particular, with, with evolution, um, there, there are enough problems, enough issues within the the idea and the thought that is evolution that uh it's, it's quite easy for us to point these kinds of shortcomings out uh no problem whatsoever uh when it comes to things like say philosophic or philosophical apologetics here we're talking about you know why anything exists at all the nature of good uh these kinds of things and in both cases they're really arguments that are using reason that are an appeal to reason and by creating controversy or creating some trouble, this is the undermining or the undercutting of the, of the false position. Uh, in addition to those two positions, and this is the position we'll talk about today in more detail, we have historic or historical apologetics. I think in some ways, uh, Missouri City people are more familiar with this particular form of apologetics, this particular uh, route. And the reason for that is we have folks in the Missouri Senate like Montgomery, Rosenblatt, Craig Parton, 
And this is the place where they do um, the bulk of their work. And in some ways, we have to say, you know, these are the kinds of apologetics that we run into uh, when we read the scriptures, especially the Gospels themselves. So when it comes to the task, the task is the undercutting or the undermining of false belief or disbelief. But so the big three are scientific, philosophic, and historical. And you think historical is the one where it most comes into play when we talk about the resurrection. Oh, yeah, definitely so. Okay. Those are my categories anyway. Sure. Yeah. Okay, so when it comes to uh, historic apologetics, and specifically apologetics that focus on the resurrection, uh, the reason this comes up, of course, is because the scriptures themselves describe the resurrection as foundation of the faith. Let me just read a little bit from First uh, Corinthians 15. So this is St. Paul. In fact, I'm just going to read. I'm just going to summarize what he said. Sure, he please do. Christ is not resurrected from the dead. Then uh, there are two issues. Faith is in vain. So our believing is a waste of time. And then we're left in our sin. So if the idea of the Christ is, is that we be forgiven our sins and reconciled to the Father, if Christ isn't resurrected from the dead, then we just don't have that. And that's really what the, the issue is then for St. Paul. Uh, to put it in a positive uh, uh, sense, then, the idea is, is that if there is a resurrection, mm. you know, then the reality of the forgiveness of sins is definitely a reality that we can talk about, that we can participate in, that we can receive. So you know, this idea of the resurrection is not a kind of a negotiable thing. Christians, if you're going to be a Christian, have to know and have to believe in the, the truthfulness of the resurrection of the Christ, the resurrection of Jesus from the grave. So having said that, then, there's different ways that people go about defending this to people who would say, look, that's ridiculous. Nobody is risen from the grave. That would be uh, something that doesn't um, work in the world in which we live, and so you cannot believe in the resurrection. Typically, the way Christians will go about defending the position is to say something like, look, when it comes to the Scriptures, the Scriptures are the Word of God, and so therefore they are true. The resurrection is accounted for, it's described for us in the scriptures, and because it's in the scriptures, therefore, like the scriptures themselves, because it is scripture, it's all true. Well, the trouble with that, uh, first let's just say there is no trouble, because that's that's actually, that's all true, and that's all good. So this is kind of the old, uh, Jesus, God said it, I believe it, kind of thing. Yes, and we believe that. I mean, that's that's the nature of being a Christian, right? But the the trouble, if if there is a trouble, is that if you're talking to a person who doesn't uh, believe in God or doesn't trust in the truthfulness of the Scripture, then that particular line of argumentation is, is going to be is tough for them. Of mm. course, the Holy Spirit works through tough things, sure. and so we still do those kinds of things. But having said that, that's going to be what the trouble is, is if you don't accept the authority of the Scriptures, then you're not going to find arguments from the Scriptures to be uh, too convincing. So as, a, as an alternative, then, there's a guy named Gary Habermas, who is not a Lutheran, I think he's Baptist, but to be honest, I don't really know. Isn't he? he uh, he's Baptist. down at Liberty University. Is that right? In Lynchburg, yeah, Virginia. I think okay. he might even be the chairman of the religion department at at, at Liberty. But he's okay. definitely at Liberty, and I think he's um, I think he's Southern he's Southern Baptist. When he was writing his doctoral dissertation up at Michigan State, so a secular institution, he took up the topic of the resurrection, and he he tells the story that when he was presenting the the topic to the department. The department head said, look, you can do whatever you want. We're a secular institution. You know, in theory, everything's on the table. But what you can't do is write a dissertation that says Jesus rose from the grave because the Bible says that Jesus rose from the grave. That's not going to wash as a doctoral (laughs) dissertation. 
so as an alternative strategy then, in a way of fulfilling the requirements for his, his dissertation and the degree, uh, Habermas came up with a kind of a of an idea that says we can still go about defending the truthfulness of the resurrection, and we can do it by using facts that scholars, generally speaking, and here meaning not just Christians, but scholars, generally speaking, facts that they will accept, and once you get at your hands on all of these various facts, so part of Habermas's process, he's gone out and he's done the research, and he's determined, uh, or he was able to identify the, the facts that people generally will accept. And once you take all of those independent pieces and you correlate them or put them together, in the end what you have is you still have an argument for the resurrection. Uh, it's not as strong in the sense of, you know, the scriptures say it, therefore it's true, but it is strong in the sense that people accept these facts, and if you're willing to give uh, these facts a fair hearing, then the fair conclusion that you can draw from these facts is that Christ, in fact, rose from the grave. So the way Habermas then proceeds after that is he, he, first, he, he brings forth these facts. Now, not everybody's going to agree on the facts, so we know that. And that's why when you look these things up, say, uh, on the Internet or you read them in books, the, the length of the list is different from place to place. Because some folks will say, nah, I don't think everybody agrees on that. Or, you know, yeah, okay, fine, everybody agrees on that. So so I how many do you usually 15, see then? How many, how many are there? Uh, I've seen as many as 15, 12. Uh, for my own purposes, in terms of just kind of remembering these things and being able to... Um, to talk about them, I, I basically whittled it down to six. Okay. Sounds like it's kind of like numbering the Ten Commandments. You can slice it a variety of different yeah, ways. Yeah. So you got six of them. So let, let's walk through okay. them. That'd be awesome. Okay. All right. First fact is this. Uh, the fact is that there is a Jesus, that he was a person, that that person uh, existed, he was born, he lived. Uh, additional material we might put in there is that he was some kind of a rabbi who lived in the uh, the right time and the right place uh, that's in question here, so first century Palestine. It seems like in the past people would um, make an effort to deny this as a fact. But as our history gets better and better and more and more sources become available, as we look to things not just, say, uh, within the Scriptures themselves, but external to the Scriptures, Josephus, uh, Tacitus, I mean, all these, these other sources, it seems really, really difficult, in fact, impossible to deny that there was a man named Jesus, that he did live in a certain time, in a certain place, uh, the right time in the right place, and that he was some kind of a rabbi, he was a Jewish person, and he had some kind of a quality. That is the thing that universally accepted. So generally uh, again, speaking, Jesus existed. Yes. So that's the first one. Hey, so yeah, far, yeah. so I mean, good. It seems like, it seems <laughs> obvious. Yeah. As Christians, it seems obvious. But sure. If you're going to do this, in, in, you know, properly, sure. Uh, if you do, if you can't substantiate or establish the existence of Jesus, there's just no going forward. That's just the way it is. So you have to say it. You have to be able to defend it. And in this case, people say, "Okay, fine. Uh, we're in the ballpark now. We know this is about Jesus. We all agree. Believer, unbeliever, skeptic, he existed." Okay. Okay. The second fact then is that this particular Jesus was arrested. Um, there's, you know, debate and dialogue about the, the facts in between, about his trial and this, that, so on and so forth. But, you know, in the main, that he was arrested, and that in the end he, in fact, was crucified, people will agree on this. 
again, because of, uh, of sources, meaning the scriptures, but even sources outside of the scriptures, there are um, things available to us, writings available to us, records available to us that say that this Jesus who existed did um, uh, did have this uh, occur in, in that he was arrested and he did, in fact, die. So again, this is important to establish as a fact because there's no getting to the resurrection, the, you know, if you don't have a death uh, prior to that. Yeah, and some people now, don't. Are, some people don't believe that he actually died, right? Right. So there are objections here. There are all kinds of theories here. Uh, one objection that, uh, as, I, as I recall, was popular in the '70s, and it was it was simply called and still referred to as the swoon theory. Which is definitely not language we would use these days, but back in the day, okay, fine, it's the swoon theory. Yeah, that's because people and, people were into that because they were swooning over the Beatles. They exactly. were swooning and over Elvis. Elvis, <laughs> right, right. So Jesus here, uh, independent of the Beatles and independent of Elvis, <laughs> right, uh, because of his experience on the cross, which is horrific and terrible, mm-hmm. uh, it gives the appearance of dying but in fact doesn't die, but merely swoons from the wounds that he received. And uh, once he's then removed from the cross, because, I mean, we could, add, we could put that in as a fact now, that he's removed from the cross and taken to the place that he was taken. The idea is that once he gets into the tomb, and because of the ointments that are applied, uh, which have a medicinal effect, say, and because of the coolness of the air and, and all those correct kinds of things, he, 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 he ceases to be a person who is swooned, and he uh, wakes up from his his, uh, his situation there, his injuries, and then he, he busts his way out of the tomb, and three days later, he's running around and appearing to folks, and this then would be the reason why there's a claim of resurrection. The problem with that, and, you know, since this was popular in the 70s, the, the Christian response that was hugely popular, the popular than in the 80s, was the research that was done into the spear that was placed into Jesus' side that pierces uh, the, the, the sac or the pericardium that surrounds the mm-hmm. heart and the heart itself, and then what comes out, the issue is the blood and the water. Mm-hmm. And so that, those scientific kinds of reports tell us that the reason for that particular thing is because Jesus was, in fact, dead. That's why you have the water and the blood, that separated state, uh, coming out of his side. Um, another theory that would, uh, you know, be good to uh, uh, refer to when it comes to the death of Jesus is Roman soldiers bring to killing people. And Roman soldiers who face consequences for not carrying out their duty, which is obviously typically death itself, once given the charge of make sure that guy on that cross dies, is dead, and then you have other things going on, like you have the ending of the day and the desire to take the uh, bodies off the cross and the breaking of the legs and, and those other kinds of things. You could basically rest assured that the, the, the Roman soldiers made sure that Jesus was, in fact, good and dead. Yeah, because you only and got doctors, like one chance to get that one right, or else you might not be alive yourself if you don't carry it out correctly. And that's just the point. And, and they're good at it. I mean, there's a kind of a detail that, that this is things that they do. They know how to put the nails in. They know how to put the cross together. They know how to raise the person. And they know how to make sure that guy doesn't come off that cross until he's dead. So, you know, the swoon theory aside, most people will say, given that Jesus was, in fact, nailed to a cross, put in that place, and was expected to die, Roman soldiers would make sure 
that he would, in fact, die. So that's accepted, generally speaking, as a fact. Well, and especially yeah. with, with this, this guy that's caused all this commotion the last few days. They had even more reason to make sure this this guy better be dead. Uh, we're really, 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 really in trouble if this guy isn't dead after we uh, oh, yeah. crucify him. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, you know, part of the intrigue of the of the passion narrative is 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 the is Pilate and the kind of struggle he goes through when he's trying to figure out how to manage. You know, I have this Jesus here, and it's obvious they're setting him up, uh, but I have a right in front of. Me. So I'm a Roman, and I'm supposed to, you know, hold the law, hold to the law, and I'm a, uh, a governor here, and I don't want to write on my hand. So, you know, what do I do? What do I do? Well, in the end, Jesus is the one who loses out here, uh, because the right of one is, is better is, is, is uh, better when or uh, it's better to take Jesus out of the system and out of the, uh, the circumstance here to have a right of many people on that. So, um, going for here. All right. So Jesus is arrested. Jesus dies. Now, the place where there is controversy, and so it's not a universal fact, is uh, the entombment of Jesus. Hmm. And we'll have to take this up as a, as a topic uh, at some other time. Yeah, we've, we've got about uh, six minutes or so here on the program, so okay. let's, uh, we'll maybe uh, have you back for a second show here at least, and we'll, uh, we'll keep at this. This is great. So, so what's, what's okay. next? Okay, so next then would be that the effect of his death is going to be that it, there's a, a kind of terrorizing of the disciples. Hmm. Uh, this is absolutely expected. Look, if he's your leader, he's the teacher, he is executed, there's good reason to believe that you're probably next on the list. Um, everything that they thought was going to take place, you know, you think of Palm Sunday and marching into Jerusalem, mm -hmm. uh, those kinds of things, and all that is completely taken away from them within uh, the space of, of seven days. Uh, these guys are not hanging around, not preaching about Jesus. They are hiding somewhere else, and the scripture tells us that they're hiding for fear of the Jews. Three days later, now we know it's not a 72 hours, but meaning the Good Friday, the Sabbath, and then the Sunday, the first day of the week, mm -hmm. uh, the women then are the ones who go to the tomb, and they have an experience with Jesus. Uh, Jesus talks with them, he interacts with them, one of the women clings to him, they then, at Jesus' direction, go back to the disciples. They share that news. Um, eventually, there is an appearance of Jesus to the disciples. Uh, Thomas is absent. They speak with him. They talk with him. They interact with him. They touch him. Then Thomas comes a full week later, and that same kind of a thing, you know, the wounds, the hand, the side, the interaction. Uh, all those kinds of things have taken place. So there's some kind of an experience of Jesus after the fact, meaning after the crucifixion. And this is what the scriptures then would describe as the resurrection. He who is dead is now alive. Mm -hmm. Now, the, the objection here is that there's some kind of a, of, a, of a mass hallucination that is taking place. That, you know, people going through grief uh, we'll, we'll see things, hear things, do things that are unexpected things because of the process that we're going through, which is the grieving process. The problem with the mass hallucination theory is that while there might be mass hallucinations, people might, as a whole, you know, have some kind of a, of a reaction to something or, say, a drug or something. What we do know is that that can happen, but the hallucination itself, in, in terms of how it's experienced, is never universal or shared. 
So, you know, person, let's say there was something in the water, some kind of a drug and some kind of hallucination. Person A hallucinates this way, B this way, C this way, D that way. The other things that work against the hallucination is the fact that they were touching Jesus, hands in, uh, uh, in, in wrists and whole in size. Um, these kinds of things are not typical for hallucinating, which is just that kind of mental experience. So if there's an objection, maybe this is a massive hallucination, but it is entirely unlike every hallucination that we have any kind of experience with in this world. Wouldn't most hallucinations be of a, of a negative sort you know like if I, I think i'm seeing things and I'm, I'm i'm freaking out and i'm trying to get away from what i'm seeing as opposed to going up and touching it could be yeah sure okay it'll say like when, when folks who uh have the loss of a, of a family member are sitting in a place uh, say in, in a house by themselves you know sometimes they'll they'll hear the family member and they'll, and they'll walk to try to find the family or, or get a feeling that they see the family member or something like that so you know, there's lots of different kinds of hallucination, but the idea of hallucination, the idea is, is that this kind of hallucination is not one that we've ever seen uh, before. Sure. And there are reasons to believe that it was not, in fact, hallucination because of the touching and the, and the handling and the other kinds of things. Two other things to throw in them for facts that are accepted facts, and there's, there's a strength thing here. There's a weaker than a strong. The first is, is that the converts, the first converts to Jesus' resurrection, who believe it, are going to be the apostles of themselves, mm -hmm. the disciples who then become the apostles right there in John 20. Sure. And they, uh, who thought he was dead, have this experience. And then when you see their preaching and their teaching after the fact, they include the resurrection as a part of what they're preaching and teaching as if it were true. And as if now, it's the key thing, it, as if it all rests on that. Exactly. Just like the scriptures that we, we read earlier, we discussed earlier, we could cite others. Sure. Uh, the resurrection is linchpin, it's central, it's foundational to the faith. And uh, what's important here to recognize is that uh, these disciples save John, all go forth preaching and teaching about the truthfulness of the resurrection, and they all die for that particular kind of preaching. And if uh, put into the position of, look, here's death or here's life, and all you have to do is renounce what you're preaching, if a person knows that preaching to be false, you know, you would think that they would give up on it so that they might live. Well, sometimes people are kind of wacky and do things that are, well, they're kind of wacky. But here you don't just have, say, one person, but you have uh, what Paul refers to as the 12, but in fact it's just going to be, you know, the 10 there at the beginning, Thomas is excluded, and Thomas is back, mm -hmm. and then they fill it in with Matthias, right? Sure. Uh, those guys all go forth, and they all preach the truthfulness of the resurrection, and they all die for this thing. Uh, that they consider to be true, and all of them do it, one after the other. Now, sometimes people will die for things that they believe to be true that are false, but in this case, their claim is that person which we saw, that person which we touched, that person, so on and so forth, and this is the reason why they were willing to die for it. You know, that's really a very strong kind of a thing. Hmm. But perhaps stronger still is the conversion... Yeah, we, just got, we have just about a minute here left, so why don't we wrap up? Is this the sixth, the sixth one, right? It's six okay. Let me, let me just through it, and then we'll wrap it up. Okay. Uh, sixth one would be the conversion of um, James of Jerusalem and, and Paul of Tarsus, who, of course, becomes Paul. And the reason for this is that both of these, these, these people, both of these figures, were hostile to Jesus as the Christ. Uh, James didn't believe that Jesus was the Messiah, and then after the resurrection, there's the conversion. He becomes bishop of Jerusalem. Mm -hmm. Paul 
for you know the time that we know him before the conversion. So as Saul of Tarsus is persecuting Christians, is opposed to Christianity in every possible way, but has a kind of experience interaction with the risen Christ, which calls which causes him to give up on his life and his position and his teaching and everything that he was being set up for. And he gave all of those things up uh, because of the truthfulness of the resurrection that he experienced when he's on his way to Damascus. Hmm. So real quick, uh, Pastor so, Pacey, to, to wrap, wrap this up, um, got about 20 seconds here. Uh, what, what kind of a conclusion can you reach based on uh, this, these things? So where Habermas goes with this is he'll say this is uh, you take all of those pieces and you put them all together, and it is entirely reasonable for a person to say that that same Jesus who lives, that same Jesus who died, is in fact that same Jesus who rose from the grave. Now, the meaning of the resurrection is something that only the Scriptures can establish, that we have the forgiveness of sins and life with God because of it. But the truthfulness of the resurrection is something that can be established through what Hardmuth then called here these, these minimal facts. Yeah, well, you know, that's just like uh, your opinion, man. That's all we have time for here today in the Student Union. Witness, January 2nd through 5th in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Check it out at lcmsu.org. And remember, college is tough. You need Jesus, we'll help.